Well, we've been on the We've been on the highway through the tail end of the book of Exodus, um, but as Adam mentioned just before, what, what we're doing is we're taking a little bit of a detour off the highway for two weeks, but it's not a detour to move away from the book of Exodus. What we're going to attempt to do is we're going to take a two-week detour, it's like the coast road, to actually dig in and focus on a really major theme that comes up in the book of Exodus, this concept of being one for worship. So that's what we're going to do for the next two weeks, and we're going to look at Romans chapter 12 tonight. Worship and being one for worship, it's a big theme. I mean, if you've been with this in this series, or even if you haven't, you'll know the deal with the book of Exodus, and that is that God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. In fact, God calls his, his man, Moses, to speak to the king of Egypt and say to him a number of times, you let my people go. But we're going to look at the purpose for which God wants his people released. That's what we're going to focus on. What, what's the end game? What's the point? Because we understand it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be released from slavery. You know, the Israelites were crying out to God. They're in pain, in slavery. It's, and it's one thing to be released from pain. But what, what we're going to consider is not simply what they're released from, but what they are released for. Yeah? what they're won for, what they're saved for. Because they're not just released from something, they're released for something. And you can catch it, actually, there's a phrase that's repeated all the way through the book of Exodus. I'll give you chapter 7, verse 16 right up front. And if you are taking notes, scribble some of these down. You'll notice there's some room on the back of your hand out there to scribble, and that might help you. Look at this. Let my people go, is what God gets Moses to say to the Pharaoh, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. So we're focusing on the so that, yeah? Let my people go because God's got a purpose. He wants them released for something particular and it is so that his people would worship him in the wilderness. Now, it's not just given to us in chapter 7, verse 16. You actually get it over and over again so that we don't miss it. So look at chapter 8, verse 1. Let my people go so they may worship me. Chapter 8, verse 20. Let my people go so they may worship me. Chapter 9, verse 13. Let my people go so they might worship me. You know, are you getting the point? Do you see the point for God's people needing to be released? It's so that they would go and worship the Lord in the wilderness. They're released for worship. God had a mission and purpose in mind that was bigger and and larger than simply relieving the pain of his people in slavery. His purpose in mission is actually to give his people something wonderful to do, something wonderful to live in, worship. What we see here in Exodus um, with God redeeming Israel out of slavery in Egypt, you, you could describe as the great Old Testament salvation event. This is the big one in the Old Testament. God redeems his people in many ways, but this is the big one, the great event of salvation where God releases his people from slavery for worship. But, but if, you, if you've read your Bible, you know it's just a preview, yeah? It's just a warm-up. The Old Testament salvation event is a preview of the coming salvation event that happens with Jesus. 
It's, it's all just a warm-up for the coming of Jesus. And so in the New Testament, the ultimate salvation event comes through Jesus. But this is like a this is a preview of that. And, and, and the same applies. If God's people in the Old Testament are released from slavery in Egypt for worship in the wilderness, then check it out. We now, as we put our trust in Jesus and follow him, we too are saved from slavery to sin for worship. And it's a whole life of worship. And it's so important for us, for us to catch the, catch the big picture of what you've been saved for. Now, when I say you've been saved for, maybe you're here today thinking, yeah, I'm not sure I've put my trust in Jesus yet. I'm just checking things out. Well, here would be the deal. Yep. It, it, it's not simply, I mean, as if it's not enough that we get saved from our sin. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? We get saved from the penalty of our sin and the power of sin. Penalty and power. As if that's not enough. To be saved from the penalty of sin as you are forgiven of your sins by the blood of Jesus as you put your trust in the cross. So that you, you are someone who's now no longer condemned by your sin. You're not treated by God as your sins deserve. And you get to escape the eternal punishment that you do for your sins. You're released from the penalty of sin and you're released from the power of sin, the ongoing slavery of sin. You see, when we come and put our trust in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit, you are no longer under the power of sin like you used to be. You know, it's called a slavery to be a slave to sin. It no longer has a hold over you. You now, by the Spirit, can say no to sin. That's an incredible freedom. That's an incredible release. That is what you've been released for. And, and, and isn't that crazy? As, as if that's not enough to be saved from or won from sin, we get even more. You are saved for something. There's an ultimate purpose for your life that goes beyond just your forgiveness of sins. And, and I think as a Christian, it, it can be possible that, that you consider your salvation primarily in what you're saved from, the forgiveness of your sin. And it's almost like you get this ticket that's like a pass for your forgiveness of sin. And you're like, great, I've got that, got that sorted, pop that in my back pocket, pull that out on the final day when I stand before God, and go, hey, yeah, I've had my sin forgiven. But here's the deal. You're not simply saved from your sin in this moment. You're saved for a whole new life today, yeah? a whole new crazy life where you now get to honour and worship the one true living God who made you for him. He made you that you would live your life in a way that puts on display his glory and his majesty. He actually saved you so that you would magnify him with all of the rest of your days. You've been saved from your sin and you've been saved for worship. Yep. God sent his son to release you and unleash you for a life of worship. Um, I saw a story this week in, um, I don't know, just popped up on my news feed about this, this wonderful story about this mangy dog 
I probably should have found a picture for it and put it up, but I don't have a picture. Picture this in your mind. A mangy street dog. I think it was in Indonesia or Bangladesh. I should get my facts right. But this mangy street dog is rescued from being stuck in mud. Like it's literally up to its neck, stuck in this dirty bog that was probably sewer and everything like that. And it's this picture of this dog stuck there. And, and then the process of what it took to rescue that dog out of the mud. But the cool thing of the story is that the dog is not simply pulled out of the bog and washed off and cleaned up. The, 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 the dog is adopted into this home as it's never been before, and it's loved and cherished and raised and given and, and given a purpose in this home, and it's got a picture of this dog months down the track, I assume, looking healthy and happy and loved. And you know, that, that's the picture of Christianity. You're not just pulled out of the bog of your sin. You're redeemed and you're brought into the household of God, and you're redeemed for a whole new, wonderful life of worship for the one who has rescued you. Do you see what you have been saved for? If, if you consider yourself someone saved from your sin, do you see, have you got a clear picture of the life that you've been saved for? It's a life of worship. So what is this worship that we've been saved for? Because that word gets used a fair bit. Let's start in the Old Testament, really, with what worship is described as here in the book of Exodus. Um, <clears throat> Old Testament worship, and you can see it in, um, I don't know if I've got a slide for this. Have I got chapter 3? Have you got a slide before that? No, this is good, this one. Yeah, chapter 5. You can scribble these ones down as well, or you can flick to it if you can get there in time, and we'll get to Romans in a minute, okay? Okay. Um, when God des describes what it means for them to worship him in the wilderness, he starts off in chapter 5 by describing it this way. Let my people go say they may have a festival to me in the wilderness. I like that word because I don't mind a bit of a music festival. Maybe you're a bit of a festival person and go there for a couple of days and get your, uh, you know, your music on and all that kind of stuff. A festival sounds good, but then when you go on and you see the details of the festival of worship, that God is going to call them into when they get to Mount Sinai, which is where they first get to be together to worship. It's, it's, it's like this. Um, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to God. So that's, that's Old Testament worship. It's to offer sacrifices. And, and, and it begins there at Mount Sinai, and then they're instructed about building the tabernacle and then the permanent tabernacle, which is the temple. And at the heart of worship is to bring a sacrifice. So Old Testament worship, at, at the very centre of it, is sacrifice. You've got to go to the tabernacle or the temple. You need to bring your best, not some just dodgy animal, but the best of the best of your livestock, and you've got to bring that and you've got to offer that up to be sacrificed. And, and, and there's, there's meant to be bowing down and prayers offered, and often the priest does that on your behalf. And as an, as, as, an, as an Israelite, that would be a regular ceremony. That's what it meant to worship, bring a sacrifice. What does that mean for us today, though, here in the New Testament? If that's what it meant in the Old Testament, of course, we don't have a temple anymore. It's not about going to a particular mountain anymore. There isn't a particular place to go into. So when you actually catch some of Jesus' words about what worship means now, it's all changed. 
or the original meaning of it is really brought to fulfilment. So catch Jesus' words in John chapter 4. Scribble these down on the way through. He's speaking to um, a woman at the well, and it's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful interaction. I'm just going to dive in on a couple of his words here where they start talking about worship. Jesus says, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, because they're talking about Sinai and there's a bit of a dispute about which mountain you're meant to go to and worship, nor in Jerusalem. And by that, he, I, I think he means temple. Yep. And he says, no, true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So can you see how worship is redefined? Jesus says, look, it's not going to be, now that I've come, it's not going to be about going to a particular mountain or a place. And it's not going to be about going into a particular building and offering an animal on your behalf. No, no, worship this side of me. True worshippers are going to worship in, what does it say? spirit and truth. So it's not about taking a sacrifice anymore and offering something on your behalf. It's to worship in spirit and in truth. This is good news. I mean, you're going to find it hard to find a temple these days anyway. And it also means that there isn't a particular mountain that you need to do a pilgrimage on in your life to get to where the real worship happens. In Islam, you do actually need to do a pilgrimage at one stage in your life to get to Mecca. That's part of worship. But in Christianity, we don't need to go to a particular mountain. No, no, we worship in spirit and in truth. Now, the reason why I want to bring you to Romans chapter 12 is it's got to be one of your favourite verses, yeah? It's one of my favourite ones. But in Romans 12, you get a line there that describes what is to be our true and proper worship. And actually, the word sacrifice is used in there, but it's not about bringing an animal. So look at Romans 12. Look at that bottom verse there. You might look at it in your Bible there. We're just focusing on verse 1 really in Romans 12 here. See that this is your true and proper worship? So here is our life of worship that you're one for. This is your true and proper worship. You want to know what it is? It's not about taking an animal to a mountain or a temple anymore, but this is it. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. Yeah? So there's still sacrifice in there, but it's not the sacrifice of an, someone else. It's not the sacrifice of an animal on your behalf. It's the sacrifice of yourself. This is, this is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. This is next level. This is you, the living you, offered as a sacrifice holy and pleasing. Now, of course, not, we're not talking here about literally dying in your body. You don't actually need to give that up, but it's to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. So you're still alive as you offer the sacrifice of your life. It is that as you live, you keep offering your life continually to God. This is huge. This is actually life-shaping. This is New Testament worship. It's the whole of you living entirely for him 24-7. Yeah? It's not just coming to this moment on a Sunday for church. And it's not even just the singing moment, which we often use the word worship for. 
Worship is before and after church. Worship is Monday through to Saturday. It's all day, every day. So it might even be that you can adjust your use of the word worship or not. But let's, let's think how we usually, typically use the word worship these days. We talk about services as some people call them worship services, which, which would be to say, oh, this is the time and the place when you worship, which is a bit of a limited way to use the word worship because worship's meant to be more than just this moment. Or we say things like, I prefer the worship at that church more than this church. Or, and when people say something like that, usually what people are thinking of is they prefer the, like the style of music and singing. That's usually what people mean when they say prefer the worship at that one. Or, or someone will say, wow, the worship was really great today. And what are they meaning by that? You know, oh, after that second song, everyone really started worshipping what do people mean by that? It's usually something that you might notice and you, you get a sense that, wow, everyone or more than usual seem to be engaged in a deeper way and lifting their voices and there seems to be more emotion caught up in it. That's, this is often how we use the word worship, yeah? And don't get me wrong, that is what we're shooting for as we attempt to sing together each week. <laughs> we actually do want to lift our voices we actually really do want to have our hearts engaged in singing. And that, that's why I trust God gives us music and the concept of singing is so that we would sing truths that would engage our hearts so that you would feel a truth, <laughs> so you would feel a thought about God and, and would help that truth go deep and sink in. You know, that is what we're shooting for. That's why we sing together. But really, that is just part of our worship, to sing and attempt to sing like that. You can use the word worship to talk about singing if you want, but I wonder whether there's a broader use of the word worship that might even be more helpful. Singing is a special part of our time. We will be a singing people for all eternity, so it's pretty key. But worship is beyond the singing moment. It's beyond the church moment. Yep. So I wonder whether... We, we want to make sure we don't limit the use of the word worship or even the concept of worship to simply the singing moment or the church moment. Because the truth is we worship when we join in prayer and, and say amen. We, we worship when you follow the Bible reading and, and you open up your Bible to look at it yourself. We worship when you sit humbly under the preached word, trying to posture your heart to be teachable. It's worship. You worship when you have that moment where we swing around and attempt to say hello to someone and welcome someone else and connect with someone. That's worship. You, you worship when you choose to serve with your time and your energy in, in a ministry team or informally to help a church family function. It's worship. You worship when you give sacrificially to fund the growth of the gospel. You worship when you prioritise the church gathering and build your weekend around it, not the other way around. And worship busts out beyond this gathering, of course, doesn't it? It busts into the whole week. You worship when you carve out time 
each day to be with your heavenly Father and read your Bible and pray. You worship when you live in loving and respectful ways among your household. You worship when you work in your paid job in honest, in, in integrity dynamics. You worship when you have the courage to open your mouth and speak about your beliefs and share your faith. You worship when you live an obedient life, keen to obey the commands Jesus gives us, keen to honour him. There's your week-long worship. And you worship when you keep repenting of your sin. As, as you see yourself fall on your face, you keep repenting ongoingly. It's worship. It's all worship. Worship is all of it. A whole life offered to Jesus. So, how's your worship going? How's your worship been lately? Got a particular area... Um, maybe one of the things I just mentioned there, got a particular area where you think, I need to learn to worship. I need to grow in my worship in that area of life. Have you, have you got something? Do you need to write it down? <laughs> Do you need to start praying about that? You've been saved for worship. You might even think, oh, Tim, everything you just said then, that's oh, oh. I've got to grow in my worship of all that stuff. I've got a lot of areas. I don't feel like I'm a good worshipper. In this moment, I don't feel like I'm a good worshipper right throughout the week. Maybe you're feeling honest and humble about that. And if that's the case, I do want to say to you, hey, I don't think worship's easy. <laughs> and Jesus doesn't think it's easy either. And when he calls us to follow him, he's really clear about how costly, actually, it's going to be. And therefore, how difficult it will be to worship him with your life. Yeah? Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, um, yeah, come follow me. But here's what's going to involve. You deny yourself, you pick up your cross, and you follow. Yeah, to worship Jesus all day, every day is actually to lay down your life Lose your life in order to save it. Yeah? Worship's going to be hard. Worship will be the hardest thing you ever do with your life, but the best thing you could ever do with your life. Because to live for the honour of the one who made you is going to give you purpose and fulfilment beyond everything else. It's the ultimate thing to pay the cost for. And those of you who have paid great costs to follow Jesus and worship him with your days, you do not regret the cost you paid, do you? Because you see how awesome it is to worship him. Those of you who are holding back and refusing to worship God in key ways in your life because you think if you did, you'd be giving up too much of yourself and you'll lose your life and life won't be as good, you don't see yet how wonderful it is to worship this is the purpose of your life. It's to be a living sacrifice, which, which in my mind looks like daily climbing back up onto the altar and saying again and again to God, okay, I'm yours. 
You, you sent your son, he shed his blood to win me and save me and rescue me and deliver me from my sins so that I would live for you. So I'm yours. This is it for me now. Worship. I live to magnify you. So what is it that you would have me do with my life? Well, he'll be clear if you open the scriptures. He'll be like, here's the deal. You seek first my kingdom. <laughs> yeah. You live for my kingdom. Yeah. And you go, okay, well, I'm going to do that with my life. And I tell you what, a life of worship ought to look very different in very key ways from those who are not attempting to worship God with their days. Yeah. It should be different. It should be costly. I remember when this stuff hit home for me as a 20-year-old because it changed the course of my life. I went from being raised in Christianity but not having a good heart towards it and passion for it to actually seeing the purpose for which I've been saved and embracing it. It, it, it changed big decisions in my life. It changed little decisions every day. And I'm so, so glad to know this is the purpose of my existence and everyone's existence who's been saved. You see, I had, um, I had pretty glorious plans for pursuing life. We all do. Um, and I had a particular life in mind that I thought would bring ultimate enjoyment and pleasure and it included career and it included obsession over hobbies and it included looking good and partying with people who looked good, to my shame, yeah? And, and, and those plans just got blown up when I caught a vision for why God had saved me. And this is not about me, really, but it's changed me. I've been saved for worship. It's actually not about me pursuing pleasure and enjoyment. It's about him and me laying down these days that I've been entrusted with for him. Yeah, I exist for his glory. Now, you might be hearing this today going, That's, I'm struggling with how big that sounds. Yeah. And, and you're struggling with, and it might even be you find yourself, if you're honest, thinking, why does God demand so much from me? Why can't I just know him but then just kind of get on with my life, you know? Like, what is it that makes God so worthy of you offering your life as a living sacrifice? Like, on what basis? Here's the thing. On what basis does God deserve all of you, every bit. On what basis? Because if I ask you that question, I wonder whether you're clear on God's worthiness for every single bit of sacrifice you could ever offer. Because if you're not clear on his worthiness, th then you might think, well, I'll give him a bit, <laughs> but I'll get on with my life also. So on what basis is he completely worthy of a whole life offered in sacrifice? What makes him so worthy? Well, we actually get it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the verse that I didn't give you, but there it is. It's come up now. You can look down in your Bible if you've got one there. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... 
offer your body as a living sacrifice. Can you see the basis? See, we've just been talking about offering your body as a living sacrifice and you th- some of you, that makes perfect sense. Other of you are thinking, well, really, kind of, if I'm going to be making big decisions here, why? What's the basis? Well, it's that first line. It is in view of God's mercy for you that you are called to be a living sacrifice. It's actually the appropriate response to God's kindness and mercy raining down on you that you are called. And this is just an appropriate, reasonable response, actually, literally in the Greek. This is your, here's your reasonable response. Here's what you should at least do with your life because of his incredible mercy and grace. Offer all of it. (laughs) It's huge, but offer all of it in view of God's mercy. If you look back at what God has done and you look back at what he's done in your life, can you see the mercy of God? Can you see the kindness of God? You know? Can you look back at and in view of it all, you know, his kindness and grace, does that just unleash you to offer yourself? Yeah? And actually, at this point in the book of Romans, Paul launches into chapter 12 with in view of God's mercy. What do you think he's been talking about for the last 11 chapters in the book of Romans? Well, generally speaking, God's mercy for us. And if, if you think back over the first 11 chapters of Romans, can, can you think of verses and key concepts about God's mercy that comes for us? Now, you may not know the book of Romans really well, so what I'm going to attempt to do in the final minute of this message is give you some of, and these are not going to be all of your favourite verses in Romans probably, I'm going to give you some of the key verses that feature the mercy of God that has come for you. And if you're scribbling, scribble down these verses because these are the ones to dig into because if you're yet to see why God is worthy of more than you could ever offer him in one lifetime, it might be that you don't yet get his mercy. You don't yet get his kindness. You don't yet see his grace for you in a way that blows your mind and makes complete sense to make crazy decisions to honour him with your life. So what's the mercy of God for you? I'll give you a few verses. Romans 3.23, Some people call this the Roman road. Have you heard that one before? Look at 3.23. This, this gives us the basis for which mercy comes. 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So no one's outside of that. That's all of us. And Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So that's heavy. We've all fallen short. We're all in sin. And the result of sin is death and judgment, eternal punishment. But look at chapter 10, verse 9. But if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So there's the mercy of God. There's salvation on offer, and it's on offer for all of those who declare with their mouth and believe with their heart. And so here's, here's the guts of Christianity. It's not about following a whole set of rules in the kind of level where you can finally call yourself a Christian. A Christian who's someone who can say this with their mouth, honestly, Jesus is the Lord, and actually believe in your heart that God did raise him from the dead. There's the heart of the testimony of a Christian. If you can say that, you've put your trust in Jesus, and here's, the, here's what you can be confident in now, you will be saved. Though you deserve death because of your sin, and you deserve penalty and punishment, you will be saved. There's the mercy of God coming for you. You've done nothing to deserve it, but he's decided to be kind to you and rescue you and save you. You will be saved. And then I can't help but to go to Romans 8 and just pick a few eyes out of Romans 8. Some of these ones are crazy. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sin deserves condemnation, but if you've come to put your trust in him, there is now no condemnation on you. If you're in Christ Jesus, how beautiful is that? To be released from condemnation. You are set free from the law of sin and death. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. You, you want to be empowered for this new life of worship? He now lives in you. God's spirit lives in you. That same spirit that powerfully rose Jesus from the dead is in you. So if you ever find yourself as a Christian thinking, I just can't. I just can't repent of that sin. I just can't worship in this way. I just can't be involved. I just can't. Oh, well, you can't say that to God. He can. And he's in you yep, to empower you for this new life of worship. The spirit that you've received has brought about your adoption to sonship. How beautiful is this as a mercy? We're not just the dog that's been ripped out of the mud. You're the dog that's been brought home and included in the family. You've been adopted you know, by the spirit. We, we call out to God now as father. You are his child. This is insane mercy. It's mercy upon mercy upon mercy and kindness just, just keeps coming for us. Yeah. I think I've got a few more. Yeah, look, Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. There's glory coming for you that you may occasionally get a glimpse of as you stick your head into it, but it's so amazing, life for all eternity in the immediate presence of the God who made you, knowing his love and being able to love and serve like you never have before. That glory is so huge that the sufferings that you may have, the cost that it is to follow and worship, not even worth comparing, relatively speaking, to the enormity of the glory that will be revealed in us. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, all things being all hard things. If, if, you've, been, if, if, you've, been, um, if you've been chosen by God, then you can trust that he's working in all hard things for your good and the good that Paul's talking about there is the ultimate good, that you will be conformed in the likeness of Christ. He's at work in it all. And we'll finish on that one. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
If you've been brought to God through Christ, you are in his love in a particular sense now. And nothing can separate you from that. How's the mercy of God that comes for us? This is what we dig into. This is what we grasp hold of. This is what we let blow our minds and our hearts. The mercy of God through Jesus. And the more we live in and understand his mercy for us, the more this whole living sacrifice life is just going to make complete sense and just see as an absolutely obvious, reasonable response to our merciful God who's come for us in ways that no one will ever come for you. How beautiful is our God. You've been one for worship. You've been saved from your sin, but saved for a life of honouring. Let me just pause for a minute and just give you some silence to think and scribble or pray and just take a moment. Maybe there's something particular the Lord's brought to you today about worship and then I'll pray. Father God, your mercies for us are astounding. As if it's not enough that you would save us from our sin. But more than that, you save us for a life that we could never invent for ourselves. A glorious life of giving our days for your honour and worship of you. Lord, would you work powerfully by your spirit in us, empowering and enabling us for that life? Would you envision us for a life of worship? And please, Lord, help us to be okay about paying the cost of this life of worship that upholds your glory. Please, please work in us, Lord, for your name's sake. And the people said... Amen.